There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. This is Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski of the CM Group at CIBC Woodgundy. Today we're going to be talking about asset allocation, among some other things. But first, Greg, I just wanted to, before we get into asset allocation and what that means, because we're going to dig pretty deep into that, talk a little bit about what's happening in the markets with this current pandemic and coronavirus, and because this seems to be on people's minds, of course, every day. I'm sure you've had some interesting calls with clients about this type of stuff. Oh, for sure. And at the time of this recording, we're about nine weeks into working from home. And it's really changed the way we work with people. When you're used to face-to-face meetings and face-to-face interactions, and then moving to fully either telephone conversations or in some cases, video conferencing, it really does change the dynamics. So I think everyone's been trying to figure out how everything works in this new environment. And we're hoping, of course, at one point to get back to the way things were, but I think that's going to be a while. It will be a while and things are changing. I know today I did a video call with a client, which can be done, except when you get leg and yes. you both <laughs> feel like you're freezing in the frame. Let's talk a little bit about where this all comes from. I didn't know much about pandemics or flus or anything like that. I know with your master's in genetics, I'm sure you studied a bit of this stuff over the years, but I don't have that background. I looked it up just for fun. And ABC, now this goes back to 2008, put out an informational piece on where does the flu come from? Where does it come from? How is it contracted? How is it spread? And I didn't realize that flu originates from animal contact. Is that something that you're aware of? Not all flus. No, I didn't realize that. I know certain ones that we all got excited about, like swine flu. Which is an animal. Ago. Exactly. So, no, I didn't realize that for all flus. So I dug a little deeper, and the History Network, back in February of 2018, talked about how the earliest report of a pandemic-like flu was 410 BC. That's a long time ago. More recently, in 1580, the first recorded pandemic was in Asia. In 1889, the Russian flu impacted as much as 40% of the world's population. Pretty staggering numbers. Now, I wanted to relate that back to the stock market itself because we are not medical professionals, never claim to be. And I just want to look at, well, how do these things react in the market? So back in 1968, during the Hong Kong flu, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell by 13.24%. But the swine flu in 2009, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, was up 40%. And the coronavirus, of course, is, I don't know, somewhere in between, somewhere in the middle. We had the largest sell-off or the fastest sell-off in history, followed by the fastest recovery in history. Quite remarkable. Yeah, that's certainly one for the record books. And I think it's interesting when you talk about the swine flu in 2009, I remember that quite clearly. And of course, that came on as we were climbing our way out of the Great Recession, the global financial crisis. And so the up 40%, it's really remarkable that despite what could have been a big problem with the the swine flu, that the market climbed its way through that. 
And I got to think, when we look at these results, we have to go back to, well, the nature of our podcast is free lunch. And there is a saying that says, there ain't no thing as a free lunch. But in investing, we would liken free lunch to asset allocation, which is what we're talking about today. So let me just kick that off a little bit. Over the next number of podcasts, and probably as time goes on, we're going to be spending a fair bit of time talking about the evolution of investing. And that's going to have us looking at some of the key innovations in finance. And those innovations, of course, usually emanate from academia and then are translated into practical applications by industry. And so we're going to start with asset allocation. And so prior to the 1950s, the conventional wisdom on investing was to analyze individual securities with the view to finding stocks that would do much better than the market as a whole. And so that securities analysis is normally attributed to Benjamin Graham, who wrote a book, a Security Analysis, with David Dodd back in 1934. And that was seen as being the guide to how to select securities, value securities. And that was the way that most portfolios were built. When I say portfolios, usually these portfolios only had a very few stocks because prior to the 1950s, the goal was to maximize returns by concentrating holdings in just a few stocks that were seen as being great potential winners. And diversification was actually seen as undesirable at that point because it would water down the excess returns that you were hoping for by picking just a few stocks that you expected to be winners. So the first innovation in finance came in 1952 when Harry Markowitz, who was subsequently awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics, developed what became modern portfolio theory. And what that theory did was show that diversification of asset classes could reduce risk without reducing expected returns. Now, hold on, Greg. Let's talk about that a little bit about what are the typical asset allocations that investors would be looking at? So when we talk about asset classes, an asset class is just basically a group of securities that behave similarly. And so the typical asset classes that we talk about in our business would include stocks, which everyone is familiar with, shares of companies, bonds, and cash. So those would be the three primary asset classes that we talk about and look at. And then there are also alternative asset classes, which would be things like commodities, real estate investment trusts, foreign currency, private equity, infrastructure. And it could get down as far as some people even use things like collectibles, art, things like that. But primarily, the kinds of portfolios that we deal with typically would have stocks, bonds, cash, and real estate as the primary asset classes. And the key thing about selecting different asset classes is that what you're looking for are different types of securities that will behave differently in different market situations, meaning that their correlations are not perfectly positive. So again, what that means is that if if you have two different asset classes and every time one went up by 10%, the other went up by 10%, then there would be no purpose in diversifying because the performance of each asset class would be identical. But what Markowitz did was look at the correlations between different asset classes and finding that stocks don't behave exactly the same as bonds. They're not perfectly correlated. By combining those asset classes together, you could create a portfolio that was efficient. And what an efficient portfolio is one that achieves either 
a specified rate of return with the lowest possible risk or a higher return for the same level of risk. And so that was really the basis for what Markowitz called the efficient frontier. The efficient frontier just being the most optimal combination of stocks and bonds and cash in a portfolio to give you the best return given a certain amount of risk. So he was the first one basically to evaluate assets, not by their individual characteristics, but by their impact on the whole portfolio performance. So just getting back to how he did that. So what he did is he'd look at each asset class and each asset class would have an expected return and an average or historical standard deviation or volatility. And so when you look at the average returns of stocks, let's say over a long period of time, they'll have an average return. Let's pick a number 8%. And then they'll have a standard deviation or volatility, meaning that the odds of getting 8% in any one year are quite low. And the the variability around that 8% could be quite high, maybe 15% a year or something like that. So looking at bonds, bonds would have a different set of expected returns and a different level of historical volatility. And when you combine them in a portfolio, the portfolio itself has a new average expected return and a new volatility. So what that meant, though, was for every level of risk or volatility that an investor wanted to take on, you could build an optimal portfolio to provide the greatest potential return for that specific level of risk. Or conversely, you could build a portfolio to provide you the lowest amount of risk for a given level of expected return. So that really was the innovation that Markowitz brought to finance in 1952. Like a free lunch? It's almost like a free lunch. That's right. (laughs) Well, I know in the 60s, the work for Markowitz was carried on by a few others. William Sharp and John Lintner worked on the work that Harry Markowitz had done to develop the capital asset pricing model. And I know there's a lot of debate over whether or not the capital asset pricing model actually works or not. But Greg, it's my understanding that this was done to create a single factor model so you could basically tell how much risk was in a portfolio on what was in it. So that amount being in stocks, bonds, cash, whatever. Yeah, and I think the capital asset pricing model was actually another great innovation in finance. As it turned out, as a model, it was an excellent model and later it was proven to be not wrong but incomplete because it really only looked at a single factor. But it was a breakthrough in terms of looking at pricing in capital markets. Well, for fun, I did a little work with the capital asset pricing model for this podcast. I looked at beta. Capital asset pricing model basically measures beta. So the beta of the stock market would be one. Anything higher than that means that it's more volatile than the stock market. Anything lower means it's less volatile than the stock market. So seeing as how we live in Calgary, I wanted to see what the beta of the energy index was versus the market. And I went on Morningstar and they've got this great little tool called Portfolio Builder or something. Or, Anyways, you can measure beta. And the, I measured beta on the iShares Energy Index versus the TSX or the Toronto Stock Exchange. And you'll never guess what the beta on the energy index was. I couldn't even imagine. Well, you can. It's 2.52. So in other words, 2.5 times more volatility than the market itself. And I guess that makes sense. With the benefit of hindsight, we can look and see how volatile energy stocks have been. And I wonder why that is. I'm assuming it's not only because these companies are in a sector that's 
dominated by commodity price issues, exploration risks, things like that. And on top of that, they have the regular market risk built in. Yeah, so that'd be like the systematic risk of just being invested, which I guess if you're just invested in the TSX as a whole, your beta would be one. Or if you're invested in the S&P 500 as a whole, your beta would be one. So just the systematic risk of being invested. And what we're talking about here is the non-systematic risk of being concentrated. So going back to what you were talking about earlier, the early days where investors would hold one to five stocks, they must have had a pretty high beta. Absolutely. And I think the thing about beta is that being a measure of volatility, what it does, it's not a guarantee of a higher return. It allows the potential for a higher return while offering also the possibility of a much worse than average return. Wait a minute though, wait a minute. Because we always hear people say, but it's higher risk, so I've got a higher return. That's kind of a misconception. I always try to remind people that by taking on more risk, you're not guaranteed a higher return. If you were guaranteed a higher return, then there would be no risk. So by taking the risk, all you're really doing is giving yourself the potential to capitalize on that higher return. But risk is two-sided. And of course, you could expose yourself to the risk of a higher loss as well. Interesting. I was looking at non-systematic risk as well and thinking about it. For a transaction to occur, there has to be a buyer for every seller and a seller for every buyer. And we've often talked about this together. And just one side might be more motivated than the other. But I don't think it's realistic to think you could be right 100% of the time. You would be the right buyer or the right seller 100% of the time. Absolutely. So Greg, let's talk about asset allocation as it refers to asset class returns. One of the questions people might ask is, well, why would I want to own a portfolio of multiple asset classes? So for instance, let's assume that stocks, well, we don't have to assume it, it's a fact. Stocks have obviously higher volatility and they have higher expected returns, not only based on historical analysis of the data where there is a premium for equities, holding equities over other asset classes like bonds or cash. And just maybe as a side note, the reason when you think about it, well, why would stocks be expected to have a higher return than bonds or cash? And the reason comes back to basic capitalism, and that is that investors would be expect to have a higher return by taking the risk of investing in shares of a company as opposed to bonds issued by a government or even issued by the same company. And so there's an expectation, if you're a stock investor, that you will have a return that's more in line with the risk you're taking. If there was no expectation of a higher return, then nobody would take the risk of investing in stocks. So the point being, well, if stocks have higher expected return, why would you want to have bonds or cash or real estate in the portfolio over the long run? And I guess there's a couple answers to that. One being, even though stocks are expected to have higher returns in any one year, there's absolutely no guarantee that they will provide a higher return. And in fact, just with probability, even over five-year periods of time, there may be five-year periods where stocks do not provide a better return. So that's number one, is just because you expect it doesn't mean you get it. And I think number two, which is more important for us and for our clients, is that the volatility that comes with stock investing is very hard on the nerves. Unless you're the most disciplined, unemotional investor, almost robotic or inhuman, 
many of us would have the difficulty in sticking with an investment strategy that had the portfolio swinging from a gain of 20% one year to a loss of 40% the next year and so on. Kind of like what's happening right now with all the news around this pandemic and coronavirus, COVID-19, the economy basically stopping and stocks are up. Well, they're down and now they're up. Exactly. And that's very hard on the nerves. And it's hard for many of our clients, including myself and yourself, who have balanced portfolios, where we do own a reasonable amount of fixed income in the portfolios. And we're still experiencing that volatility, but just not as dramatic as the stock-only investors were. So I guess the problem with just picking the best asset class in terms of expected return is, as we've said, you never know for sure. And asset class returns do vary dramatically from one year to the next. And so in order to have both a positive investment experience, which means sticking with an investment strategy that we can live with over many years and many market cycles, we want to make sure that we're also capitalizing on the opportunities that come from other asset classes as well. And I think that just comes out in spades when we look at some of the returns over the last 20, 30 years in different asset classes. Well, even longer. I looked at some data from an Andex chart going back from 1934 to the end of 2019. And we can get into what a stock is. There's all different types of stocks, small cap, large cap, value growth. You could even talk about preferred shares at some point. But just in general, a stock in the U.S., from 1934 to 2020, if you put a dollar in, it grew to almost $10,000, or in other words, 11.4% per year. In Canada, 9.6% per year, so that same dollar grew to just under $2,400, and international was 8.2% per year. But those numbers are determined by different time periods. Different things happen in different years, and we've talked about that together. Just on that note, because... Well, it's interesting. I've been in this business now for about 25 years, and I came in at an interesting time. In the late 90s, stocks were doing very well. In Calgary, it was energy stocks, which were having a great run up until about 1999 when oil prices dropped to $10 a barrel back then. But looking at broad asset classes, I mean, we all know that leading into the end of 99 and early 2000, the technology stocks were all the rage. And so the stock markets, and particularly the more concentrated stock markets like the NASDAQ, but even the just the broad U.S. stock markets in general were having a great run up until March of 2000. Interestingly, from March of 2000 to the end of 2009, in fact, the beginning of 2000 to 2009, U.S. stock returns were negative 0.9% per year. But wait a minute, I thought we had an expected higher return with stocks than other asset classes. Well, we do, and that's why that 10-year period was very unusual. And so during that same time where U.S. stocks went down 0.9% a year over 10 years, bonds, just look Canadian bond index, gained about 6.7% per year. Totally unexpected, but that's what happened. And interestingly, from 2009 to 2019, U.S. stocks returned 13.6% per year. What happens then is when you come out of a period like 2009, people have just gone through 10 years of negative returns on the U.S. stock market. I know many of us in Canada blamed the U.S. for 
Everything. Essentially causing the Great Recession, or the financial crisis because of their lax lending standards and mortgages and things like that. And many people were uncertain about investing in the U.S. coming out of that period. And anybody that avoided U.S. stocks missed out on 13.6% annually for the last 10 years. So because of our inability to predict what is going to happen over a one-year, three-year, five-year, or even 10-year period, which seems like a long time, but I guess in investing terms, it's not that long, we want to build an asset allocation strategy that allows us to earn returns in every year by ensuring that we're in the at least the right asset classes with part of our money. And that's really the whole concept. I usually tell people I'd rather be approximately right than exactly wrong. And that really is the concept behind asset allocation. Well, and we've often talked about this get rich versus lose everything portfolio. So the concentrated five stock portfolio, when things are good, you're doing good. And you definitely have the ability or the opportunity to get rich. But when things are bad, I guess you're not having the same experience. That's exactly right. And that's, again, what we want to avoid. I guess for all of us, the goal would be to, if you could have perfect market timing, you would be able to adjust your portfolio every year or every time it looked like something different was going to happen and you could perfectly time your way into and out of different asset classes. But of course, we can't do that. And so there's a number of different strategies or different asset allocation strategies that we'll talk about in future podcasts. But there's a few different ones out there. We stick to the first one, but there are others. And so the first strategy that we use is what we call strategic asset allocation. And really what that involves is trying to identify for every investor what level of return they would like to achieve within a level of risk that they're willing to take on. And so Well, even before we get there, though, we've got to do the planning to figure that out. So we're working with clients to make sure we know what's important to them that requires planning money and time, and that determines how much risk is available to their portfolio. Exactly. And not only that, what I always try to encourage people to do, because if you ask people what return are they looking for, everyone will say 10% a year, which is what we all want. But what I usually do, and as a result of the planning exercise, is to say, well, what level of return do we need to achieve to reach our goals? And if that level of return is achievable without taking much risk, why would we want to exceed that level of risk in an effort to get a higher return than we actually need? So the strategic asset allocation really focuses on what are you trying to achieve? What level of return do you need to achieve those goals? And what amount of risk do we have to take in building a portfolio, an efficient portfolio from there? So there's another couple of types of asset allocation that people will use. Dynamic asset allocation. This is where the actual asset allocation might be adjusted over time due to relative changes in the economic environment or or things like this. And so we're not necessarily talking about making major changes as a result of something like we've just gone through with the coronavirus and the impact on the economy, but more looking at changes and making adjustments based on that. And the last type is what we call tactical asset allocation, which really means market timing. And what that means is that in certain periods, you'll make a prediction about what's going to happen based on what's just recently happened or some views of the future and adjusting the portfolio balance based on those predictions. 
And again, because those are highly market timing oriented, we tend to avoid those as much as we can. Yeah, I like to think of asset allocation as like a recipe for baking a cake. And I don't bake a lot of cakes, but my daughter does. And I know that you need to have the right amount of ingredients pretty exact in order to achieve the outcome that you want. So to me, I feel like tactical asset allocation is like trying to bake a cake without one ingredient 100%. Right on. Listen, we're going to spend a lot of time over the next coming months talking about each of these items, stocks, bonds, cash, digging into each of them as they come across. But, you know, there's definitely, and you talked about it early in this podcast, the difference on the risk-return trade-off. And I think it's important that investors understand what that risk-return trade-off is for them. And it's very different. Everyone has their own goals and their own ability to withstand risk or volatility in their portfolios. This is kind of a funny segue, but I recently read a book called A Gentleman in Moscow. And I know you started reading it, Greg, because I gave it to you. In the middle of it. That's right. You bet. Uh, (laughs) Talk about a risk-return trade-off. I won't spoil it for you, but written by a guy named Amor Towles. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Mr. Towles actually worked in finance before becoming an author and now is a 100% author. So I'm not sure what his role was in finance, but he claims to have worked on Wall Street. In any event, there is a huge risk-return trade-off in the book. I'll leave that for you to discover. Let's talk about that next time after I finished it. But one thing that did come up, and we've been talking about, just for fun, some movies we've been watching, and I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when I was on a plane. I don't remember, you remember what it's like to be on a plane, right? Yeah, it's a faint memory, but yeah, (laughs) I do remember. Well, a few months ago, I did try to watch it, and I watched up to the halfway point. And I got to tell you, I was so bored that I turned it off. Now, number one, because my flight was going to land before the movie was going to end, so I knew I wouldn't see the end, and it just nothing happened. But I got to give you credit, Greg, because you told me it was a great movie. I watched the last half of it just last week, and it was. It was a great movie. It was a real great look back to the Hollywood era of the 60s, and it was a fantastic movie. I'll have to watch it again, and it just so happens I have a little time on my hands these days to be able to do that. It kind of reminds me of what we're talking about today. Different time periods you can point out as having better returns than others. If you look out a year or go back a year, just alter the time frame, you have a completely different experience, kind of like watching the last half of that movie. Exactly. Well, listen, I think that does it for us today. We want to thank all the listeners. I'm sure there's many of them out there. Just a reminder, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, except perhaps asset allocation, what we talked about today. We'll be going through diversification on our next podcast, and we hope you'll join us. Thanks to everyone for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners. Please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. 
This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.